0: Hi everyone, it's Aisha from God FM. I found a really good video on uh, this article all about the Bible, who the Jews are, who the Gentiles are. I couldn't put it better myself, so I've decided to reshare it. And I hope you enjoy it. If you wish to find God FM, you can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Amazon, Samsung, Chrome, Apple, Telegram, on various channels, BitChute, and also for all our media creations, Godfm Media. If you wish to contact us, email us at admin at godfm.org.uk. Have a great day. God bless you.
1: The identification of the Anglo-Saxon, Scandinavian, and Germanic peoples as the surviving members of the race of Israel leaves us with two other questions to answer. First, who are the Jews? And second, was Jesus Christ a Jew? To answer these questions, we must first define what we mean by Jew. The muddled thinking of most people on this subject is due to the fact that they never know just what they do mean by Jew. Sometimes they mean a Jew by religion, regardless of his race, for Negroes and Chinese have been converted to Judaism. Or sometimes they mean a Jew by race, regardless of his religion. For example, Premier Ben-Gurion of the Jewish nation in Palestine, Is a Buddhist by religion though a Jew by race and usually people don't even know which of these two they mean since it can be answered quickest let us first take the question was Jesus Christ a Jew by religion the answer is clearly no Jesus had the true religion of the Old Testament found in the law and the prophets and he constantly rebuked the Jews for having abandoned this for Judaism under the Babylonian Talmud which in his day was called the tradition of the elders. In Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, he said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Until heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Jesus constantly rebuked the Jews for their apostasy, for setting aside the laws of God in favor of the tradition of the elders. This Talmudic Judaism was very different from the religion we find in the Old Testament. The late Rabbi Stephen F. Wise, chief rabbi of the United States, expressed it so clearly that I can't improve on his words. He said, The return from Babylon and the adoption of the Babylonian Talmud marks the end of Hebrewism and the beginning of Judaism. Since the true religion of the Old Testament was the religion of the real Hebrews, not Jews, the learned rabbi was right in calling it Hebrewism, and noting that it came to its end when the Talmud, then called the tradition of the elders, was adopted, and that this was the beginning of a new religion, Judaism. So we read in Matthew 15, verses 1 to 9, Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. The same incident is found also in Mark 7, verses 5 to 13. In John 5, verses 37 to 46, Jesus told the Jews, The Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and it is they which testify of me. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Again, in John 8, verses 54 and 55, he said, It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God, yet ye have not known him. In John 15, verse 23, Jesus said, He that hateth me, hateth my Father also. In the 21st chapter of Matthew, Jesus summed up the position of the Jews by saying that even the tax collectors and the harlots could enter the kingdom of God before the Jews. Surely Christ's entire ministry was a complete demonstration that he was not a Jew by religion. Then was Jesus a Jew by race? To answer this, we must trace the racial ancestry of both Jesus and the Jews. Jesus Christ was a pure-blooded member of the tribe of Judah, and no true Judahite was a Jew by race, as we shall see. Jesus' ancestry is given in both the first chapter of Matthew and the third chapter of Luke. Both of them show that he was a descendant of the patriarch Judah, through one of his twin sons, (coughs) Pharisee. By his mother Mary, he came through the line of David and Nathan, the brother of Solomon, as traced in the third chapter of Luke. Jesus Christ was therefore a pure-blooded Israelite of the tribe of Judah as Paul says in Romans 9, verses 4 and 5. Now, let us trace the racial descent of the Jews. First, let us note that the Jews were not and are not Israelites. Yes, I know you've been taught that Jew and Israelite were the same thing, but no greater falsehood was ever taught, as we shall see. Let us get the first proof of this from Jesus Christ himself. He stated plainly in Matthew 15, verse 24, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Therefore he was sent to those who were of Israel, but not to others. Accordingly, when he sent his twelve disciples out to preach his gospel, Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6 records that he told them this, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he added, Ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. That's Matthew 10, verse 23. They could have gone over all the cities of Judea in a month. So it was obvious that the cities of Israel, to which he referred, were the cities of the so-called lost tribes who were then ready to enter Europe in their long migration. But take careful note of Jesus Christ's own words. I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep, of the house of Israel. If the Jews were any part of Israel, then they would have been some of his sheep. But he says they were not. In the 10th chapter of John, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by mine. But he tells the Jews, and it says Jews, but ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. Note carefully those words. He does not say that the reason that the Jews are not his sheep is that they don't believe and that they could become his sheep just by changing their minds. To the contrary, he says that the reason they don't believe is that they are not of his sheep. He knows his sheep and knows that the Jews are not of his sheep. Since the Jews are not any part of any tribe of Israel, then who are the Jews? Let's trace their ancestry. We find they were made up of several Canaanite peoples. God required that the true line of His people must be kept free from mongrelization with the neighboring Canaanites. Accordingly, Genesis 24, verses 3 and 4 records that Abraham took great pains to see that his son Isaac should only marry a woman of his own people. Likewise, Genesis 27, verses 46 to 28, verse 1 records that Isaac also required that his son Jacob, the father of the Israelites, should also marry only within his own race line. This law had been obeyed for many centuries to keep the race line pure. But one of the sons of Israel, the patriarch Judah, father of the tribe of Judah, violated it by marrying a Canaanite woman who bore him three sons, of whom only one, Shelah, survived and left descendants. See Genesis 38, verses 1 to 5. This half-breed mongrel line of descendants by Shelah must be distinguished from Judah's pure-blooded descendants by his twin sons, Phares and Zarah. Judah fathered Phares and Zara by his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Although born out of wedlock, they were of pure Israel stock on both sides, and from one of them, Phares, Jesus Christ was descended. The descendants of these twins are the real tribe of Judah. The half-breed son, Shelah, accompanied Judah into Egypt and in the following centuries left many descendants. They were in the Exodus and accompanied the armies of Israel into the Promised Land. See Genesis 48, verse 12, and Numbers 26, verse 20. However, they bred true to type. They were half-breed Canaanites lacking the spiritual insight which God gave to his own people. So they remained idolaters, Baal worshippers. In 1 Chronicles 4, verse 21, you will find them referred to as the house of Ashbeah. Ashbeah is a corruption of Ish-baal, man of Baal, and shows that they were still idolaters, Baal worshippers, unable to perceive the God of Israel. So these Shelanites, half-breeds, formed one of the peoples of the land who made up the Jews in the time of Jesus Christ. Another alien racial group who became part of the Jews were the mixed multitude, which Exodus 12, verse 38 says, left Egypt along with the children of Israel. The Hebrew word here translated mixed is the word Arab, meaning half-breed or mongrel. During the two centuries in Egypt, Many had violated the divine law against race-mixing, and these were the result. On the Exodus, when the going became hard in the wilderness, the Bible records that this mixed multitude made a lot of trouble and led some of the Israelites even into rebellion. See Numbers 11, verses 4 to 6. This mongrelized group were still in the land even after the return from the Babylonian captivity. For we find them listed in Nehemiah 13, verse 3, as still in the land and still a source of trouble. These also were among the Jews in Christ's time. Then there were the various other Canaanite peoples who were still in the land, chief of whom were the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, and the Amorites. When the Israelites were about to enter the promised land, God gave them specific instructions to completely drive out or exterminate all of these Canaanites, saying, When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land, whether thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou, And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. But of the cities of these people, which the Lord thy God doth give thee for an inheritance, thou shalt save alive nothing that breathes, but thou shalt utterly destroy them. Namely, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. See Numbers 33, verses 51 to 56, Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 to 6, Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 to 18. Now I know that it's fashionable among the liberal church members of today to look down their noses at God and say, I just can't believe in that cruel God of the Old Testament. However, I think he will manage very well without their belief. He always has a good reason for what he does and what he tells us to do. The Bible doesn't argue with you about the reasons for its rules, it just states the rule, but there is always a good reason if you will look for it. For about 2,000 years the Canaanites had worshipped Baal and Ishtar, the most immoral religion in the world, with the possible exception of some Hindu religions even today. Part of the worship of Baal and Ishtar consisted of the compulsory prostitution of all the women. On certain festival days of the year, all the women of the village had to sit in the field outside the village gate, and any wandering camel driver who came along could select the woman of his choice, hand her the coin which she must pay over to the temple, then take her aside and leave with her his syphilis or gonorrhea as the case might be. This funneled into Palestine the venereal diseases of all Western Asia. Any doctor can tell you that one infection of syphilis not cured can produce degenerative changes in the children for as many as four generations. But the Canaanites had been replenishing the disease with new infections every generation for 2,000 years. They were not physically, mentally, morally, or spiritually fit to marry or even associate with our people. Therefore, God warned the Israelites to exterminate them. If you do not, he warned them, you will have integration. Your children will grow up with theirs as playmates. They will intermarry until you become as badly polluted as they are, and I will have to destroy you as I am commanding you to destroy them, and for the same reason. But the Israelites are always soft-hearted and soft-headed. While they did exterminate the people of Jericho and a couple of other cities, The Bible records that they left most of the others alive, merely making them pay a heavy tribute tax. For example, the city later named Jerusalem was named Jebus at the time the Israelites came in. The Bible records that the Jebusites were neither killed nor driven out, but continued to live among the people of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. See Joshua 15, verse 63. Judges 1, verse 21, and 19, verses 10 to 12. 1 Chronicles 11, verses 4 to 9, and 2 Chronicles 8, verses 7 and 8. Even after the people of the southern kingdom of Judah returned from the 70 years' captivity in Babylon, the Jebusites were still in the land, and some of the people were intermarrying among them. See Ezra 9, verses 1 and 2, and Nehemiah 13, verses 23 to 29. And the Bible records the same thing as to the various other Canaanite peoples. Further proof of this is found in various places, such as Ezekiel 16, verses 1 to 3. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother was a Hittite. Now God could not have said this truthfully as to any real Israelite. But he was not saying it to Israelites. He said it to the city of Jerusalem and her people. These were in large part Canaanite Jews, and they had gained power in the manner by which Jews always gained it. Hence Jerusalem was becoming more and more corrupt as most of the prophets record. They surrounded and became the influential advisors of the kings of Judah. Just as today they surround and make up almost all of the influential advisors of our president. We find clear proof of this in Isaiah 3, verses 8 and 9, where he says, For Jerusalem is ruined, and Judah is fallen, because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord, to provoke the eyes of his glory the show of their countenance doth witness against them and they declare their sin as sodom they hide it not woe unto their soul for they have rewarded evil unto themselves now in china where their rulers were chinese you couldn't say that the show of their countenance doth witness against them for their faces would be just like those of the rest of the chinese and in sweden where their ruling class were swedes you couldn't say that their faces were a witness against them, for they'd be the same kind of Swedish faces as the rest of the people had. But in Jerusalem, the faces of the Canaanite Jebusite Jews identified them, and were a witness against them. The real Israelites were not hook-nosed. The ancient kings of Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon were very vain about their military conquests, and they left carved stone monuments telling how they had captured this city and that one killed so many people and enslaved the others and so forth. And on these monuments, they usually also had carved in the stone pictures of the captive people. Whenever they showed Israelites, the faces had straight noses and were generally of the Anglo-Saxon type. But when they showed Canaanites, the faces were those of typical hook-nosed Jews. Therefore, the faces of the Canaanite Jebusite Jews who had gained controlling power as merchants, bankers, advisers of the king, the wealthy ruling class, identified them as separate from the real Israelites. The show of their countenance doth witness against them. And they had indeed ruined the kingdom of Judah. Now go back and read the many places where Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel condemn the wickedness which was found in Jerusalem. Don't you find the same conditions existing today in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, and Washington, D.C., where large numbers of the same people have gained power through their wealth? So we find that there were still large numbers of Canaanites in the land, integrated with the real Israelites and Judahites, and bringing the lowering of standards which integration always brings. Look at the city of Washington, D.C., for example. Besides the Jebusites in Jerusalem, the Bible records that the other Canaanite peoples, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, and the Amorites, were not exterminated nor driven out, but merely conquered and made to pay a tribute tax and left in the land to be integrated with the people and corrupt them. So these Canaanites were another element of the Jews in the time of Jesus Christ. You will remember that when the people of Israel left Egypt, they were accompanied by a mixed or mongrel multitude. The same is true of the return of the remnant of the people of the kingdom of Judah from their captivity in Babylon. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah record the return. They show that the total number who returned was 42,360. But they also show that among these were many who were not Israelites of any tribe. They were Babylonians who had come with them in order to get in on the ground floor, as the saying is. And they had even infiltrated into the priesthood. But it says that these sought their register among those who were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. When you add up the total of all these other elements listed in Ezra and Nehemiah, they equal 8,381 of these alien Babylonians, or about one-fifth of all the people who returned from Babylon to Palestine. So they also formed another element of the Jews of the land in Jesus Christ's time. Now one more, and we complete the list, and that is the Edomites. You will remember that Esau and Jacob were twin brothers, but Esau was a man of such low character that we have God's own testimony in Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau. Jacob kept the race line pure, and God changed his name to Israel and made him the father of God's own chosen people, Israel. But Esau married two Canaanite wives and one Ishmaelite wife, and left only half-breed mongrel children. See Genesis 26, verses 34 and 35, Genesis 27, verse 46, and Genesis 36, verse 3. As his mongrel descendants couldn't marry into the true Semitic line, he moved out from among them and went down to Mount Theer, the rugged range of mountains southeast of the Dead Sea. And this land was called Edom, or occasionally by the Grecianized form of the word, Idumia. Thereafter, his descendants were called Edomites. See Genesis 33, verse 16, and Genesis 36, verses 1 to 9. There they had a long and troublesome history. Esau's grandson was Amalek, father of the tribe of Amalek, who were such an evil lot that in Exodus 17, verses 14 to 18, God said that he would have perpetual war with Amalek until they were all destroyed. The Edomites constantly harassed the southern portions of Israel until King Saul beat them off about 1087 B.C., But Saul disobeyed God's command to exterminate them, and for this disobedience God deposed him as king in favor of David. See 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 to 26. But even David didn't exterminate them, and there was a long history of wars between Edom and Israel, later between Edom and Judah. You will find it set out in 2 Kings, chapters 8 and 14, and in Second Chronicles, chapters 20 and 25. The whole book of Obadiah is devoted to God's condemnation of Edom's treacherous attack upon the kingdom of Judah when Judah was being conquered by Babylon. During the Babylonian captivity of Judah, the land lay nearly empty, and during this period, the people of Edom, partly from opportunity and partly from pressure against them from the east, moved over into the vacant southern half of the old kingdom of Judah. See Funk and Wagner's New Standard Bible Dictionary, pages 198 and 199, and Scribner's Dictionary of the Bible, volume 2, pages 644 and 645. From this new area, they continued to harass the little nation which returned from Babylon. By about the year 142 B.C., the returned exiles of Judah won complete independence under the Maccabean line of kings. And about 120 B.C., John Hyrcanus, one of the Maccabee kings, conquered the Edomites. But he, too, instead of exterminating them, took them into his kingdom, offering them full citizenship if they would give up their paganism and adopt the religion of Judaism. This they did and from 120 B.C. they were full citizens of the kingdom. See Josephus, Antiquities of the Jews, Book 13, Chapter 9, and see also the Jewish Encyclopedia, Volume 5, page 41. By the year 69 B.C., incompetent leadership and rising intrigue within the Maccabean monarchy, together with the rising power of Rome in Western Asia, gave opportunity to Antipater, also called Antipas, an Edomite chieftain and founder of the Herodian family, to rise to power. By bribery, boldness, and military skill, he gained the favor of Rome, and the Romans made him procurator or governor of Judea. His son, Herod I, beginning as governor of Galilee, used the same methods to secure appointment as king of Judea in 40 B.C., and by 37 B.C. he had gained complete control of Judea. He maintained himself in power by extreme ruthlessness and by bribery, for which he taxed the people very heavily. So the New Deal, Raw Deal, and New Horizons are not so new after all. This is the same Herod who had all the little male children in Bethlehem murdered, trying to murder Jesus Christ in his infancy. His son, Herod Archelaus, held the governorship the Romans wouldn't trust him with the crown, for ten years of astonishingly evil misrule from 4 B.C. to 6 A.D., after which the Romans convicted him of crimes and removed him. And thereafter, Judea was governed by Roman procurators, of whom Pontius Pilate was number six. Nevertheless, the Romans left practically complete power of local government in the hands of the Herodian Edomites who had complete control of the temple and power to enforce all their local laws. Remember how Pontius Pilate tried to get out of condemning Jesus Christ, telling the Jews, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. That's John 18, verse 31. These Edomite Jews could say that Abraham was an ancestor of theirs through Esau, as they did in John 8, 33. But this Hebrew blood through Esau had been diluted to the vanishing point by 1,700 years of marrying only people of Canaanite racial stocks. Therefore, Jesus Christ rebuked them for falsely claiming to be still of Abrahamic and therefore inferentially of Israelite lineage. For he told them in John 8, verse 44, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. You should very carefully reread the 8th chapter of John, verses 31 to 47. These were Jews to whom Jesus was speaking, and the Bible identifies them as Jews. In the Jewish Encyclopedia, the article on Edom concludes with the words, The Edomites today are found in modern Jewry. Now let us review for a moment what we have covered. We have seen that Jesus Christ was not a Jew by religion, for the Jews based their religion on the Babylonian Talmud, which was at that time called the Tradition of the Elders. And Jesus Christ's whole ministry was one constant battle against the evils of Judaism. We have seen that Jesus Christ was a true Israelite of the tribe of Judah by race. And we have seen that the Jews of his time included the mongrel descendants of Sheila the mongrel mixed multitude which followed the Israelites out of Egypt, the various Canaanite peoples in Palestine, including the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, and the Amorites, and finally the mongrelized descendants of Esau, the Edomites. Now do you understand why Jesus Christ, who said that he was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, told the Jews, I know my sheep, and they know me. But ye, the Jews, ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's in the 10th chapter of John. The tiny remnant of Judah and Benjamin, which came back to Palestine from the Babylonian captivity, did leave some descendants in Palestine. But these were Jesus Christ's sheep, and he himself said that he knew them, they knew him, and they followed him. All those in Palestine who became Christians were true members of the tribe of Judah or of the tribe of Benjamin, but they were not Jews. And the Jews were not members of Judah, Benjamin, or any other Israelite tribe, for Jesus Christ himself said they are not of his sheep. Now we know who it was who constituted the Jews in Jesus Christ's time. If you want to bring it down to date and find out who are the Jews in our own day, We must add one more racial element. Of course, the descendants of the Jews of Jesus Christ's day are among them, but there is also another element, the Khazars. These make up the Slavic and Germanic Jews of today. Meanwhile, we must return to the Jews of Palestine for a few words. As you know, by A.D. the Romans had found the rascality of the Palestinian Jews so intolerable that they began the campaign which resulted in the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Nearly all the Jews were then expelled from Palestine, and most of them migrated in large numbers to what was then called Byzantium, later called Constantinople, and today is known as Istanbul, facing the Bosphorus, outlet of the Black Sea. Here again they demonstrated the truth of the Bible's lesson, that conduct is the product of character, or in Jesus Christ's own words, ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. By about the year 300 A.D., their rascality had again become so intolerable that they were again expelled, and they moved northeast across the Black Sea into the Khazar kingdom. About the year 150 A.D., the Khazars, an Asiatic people related to the Turks, migrated westward from Central Asia and established a great empire which covered what is today southwestern Russia, north of the Aral Sea, the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea, and including the Don and Dnieper valleys and the Crimea. About the year 740 A.D., Bulan, the Kagan or king of the Khazars, was converted to the religion of Judaism together with some 4,000 of the most powerful nobility of the kingdom. In those days it was not helpful for a subject to be in religious conflict with his king or with the baron on whose land he lived. So in due course most of the Khazars became Jews by religion. In fact it became part of the kingdom's constitution that no one but a Jew by religion could be king. The principal languages spoken were the Khazar language, which is called Yiddish today, and Turkish. During the great invasion by the Mongols under Genghis Khan, many of the Judaized Khazars were dispersed into what is now Poland and Lithuania. These Khazars, Jews by religion, constitute the Slavic Jews today, those with names such as Minsky and Baranov and Moskovitz, the latter often shortened to Mosk as you will note. Also, since much of the western part of this area has been at one time or another ruled by Austrian or Germanic peoples who brought in their own language, these Khazars also took Germanic names, such as Gold or Goldberg, Rosenberg, Eisler, and so forth. And if you are wondering how they can be so much like the other Jews, historical documents written at the time the Khazar Empire was at its greatest height refer to their tradition that their ancestors originally came from the region of Mount Seir, which is Edom, the home of the Edomite Jews. If you wish to look up further details, you will find brief articles on the Khazars in various encyclopedias, such as the Britannica. The Jewish encyclopedia has six pages on it. In some it is spelled K-H-A-Z-A-R, in others C-H-A-Z-A-R, and even other variations. It is also discussed in A History of the Jews by Solomon Grazel and A History of the Jews by Professor H. Grant, both works being published by the Jewish Publication Society of America. The most thorough discussion of the whole problem is found in that magnificent bit of historical research, The Iron Curtain Over America, by Colonel John Beatty. Colonel Beatty is a an historian and professor of history whose works are used as textbooks in more than 700 colleges and universities. Iron Curtain Over America is one of the most thoroughly documented and accurate works ever put in print. It is well worth the $4 it costs. If you can't find a copy in your local bookstore, you can buy one by mail from Post Office Box 27895, Los Angeles 27, California. It should be in the library of every patriotic American and every good Christian. <clears throat> Perhaps you are now wondering, why does my Bible sometimes speak well of the Jews? Such as Paul saying in Romans that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And in Acts, Paul saying that he was a Jew of Tarsus. If you will look up these few instances in a good concordance, such as Strong's, you will find that in each instance, the translators have written the word Jew in English, where it was not used in the original Greek from which they mistranslated it. In each instance, in the original Greek, the word used was Eudaio, which does not mean Jew, but simply a Judean, a person whose home is in the land of Judea, or southern Palestine. In Greek, it does not have a religious or a racial connotation. It is a geographical term like Californian. A Californian could be white, black, brown, or yellow by race, and he could be Christian, Jew, Buddhist, or atheist. So also, a Eudaius was merely a person who lived in Judea, where, as we saw, there were some Israelites of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, but there were far more Canaanite Jews, and also a general mixture of Romans, Greeks, Syrians, Egyptians, and so forth. It is true that Christian salvation was first offered in the land of Judea, hence to those who were living there, the Eudaeus. And later, as the apostles traveled from city to city, it was soon offered to the Greeks. But it was never offered to the Jews as a preferred class, for you will remember that Jesus Christ taught only in impossible-to-understand parables when there were Jews around, and explained them privately to his disciples, explaining that he spoke among the Jews only in parables, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. Both Matthew 13, verses 10 to 15, and Mark 4, verses 10 to 12 record this. Jesus Christ was taking great pains to see that the Jews could not understand Christianity and be converted. He was preaching only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the members of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, which he said were his sheep, who knew his voice and followed him. The Jews he rejected as the children of their father, the devil. Now to sum it all up, the Jews are not and never were any part of any tribe of Israel. They include various mixtures of Egyptian, Babylonian, and Canaanite peoples, the Edomites, and later also the Khazars. Jesus Christ was a pure-blooded Israelite of the tribe of Judah without any Jewish ancestry, and he was not a Jew by religion. Now think this over carefully. The group of nations which we loosely group under the term Anglo-Saxon, including the people of the British Isles, the Scandinavian nations, nearly all of Germany, Holland, some few of the people of France and Belgium, with the closely related people found in Austria, some of the Swiss, some of the Hungarians and North Italians, and their descendants now living in the United States, Canada, Australia, and South Africa. These people are the living descendants of the Israel of the Bible, blood brothers of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Aren't you proud of your ancestry? It is unfortunate that most people have so many mistaken ideas about their religion due largely to the many mistranslations of words in the commonly used King James Version of the Bible. One of these mistaken ideas is that most of the people of the United States and Western Europe, in fact, nearly all the Christians in the world, are Gentiles. You hear many of them, even clergymen who should know better, say, I'm just a Gentile saved by grace. I think it's high time that we learn something about one of the most misused words, Gentile. First, you might be surprised to know that there is no such word in the Bible in its original languages. Oh yes, I know, you're now riffling the pages of your King James Version, looking for some of the many places where you will find Gentile in the King James Version. But I said that there is no such word in the Bible in its original languages. The word was put into it by translators who changed the wording of the Bible centuries after the last book in the Bible was written. If you're a good Christian, you will surely agree with me that what the prophets originally wrote in the books which make up our Bible was inspired by God. It was correct as the prophets wrote it, but not one of them wrote in English, remember, because no such language as English existed until many centuries after the prophets lived. It was written in Hebrew as to the Old Testament, and the New Testament was originally written in the language which Jesus Christ spoke, Aramaic a Semitic dialect somewhat similar to, but not quite the same as, Hebrew. But Aramaic was not generally understood outside of Western Asia. So when Christianity began to spread into Southern and Southeastern Europe, the New Testament had to be translated into a language which was widely used in Europe. Greek served this purpose nicely because it was understood by well-educated men over nearly all of Europe. Therefore, the New Testament was first translated into Greek. Protestant English language translations of the Bible today are nearly all translated from Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament and Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. So, let's start at the beginning with the Old Testament. The word Gentile is not even once used in any Hebrew manuscript of the Old Testament For the good reason that there is no such word in Hebrew, nor any word which corresponds to it. Everywhere you find the word Gentile used in your King James Version of the Old Testament, it is a mistranslation of the Hebrew word goy, which means nation. The plural form of it is goyim. Since it means nation, why didn't they translate it correctly? Well, sometimes they did. But for the most part, they translated it to fit the official doctrines of the church of their day no matter what violence that did to the true meaning of the word. The church hierarchy had long since determined what its doctrine should be, and if the Bible didn't agree with them, so much the worse for the Bible. Men were still being burned at the stake for heresy in those days, you will remember, and heresy meant any religious idea which differed from the official doctrines proclaimed by the bishops. So the translators did the best the church would allow them to. Now let's take some examples. In Genesis 12, verse 2, they translate it correctly. God said to Abram, I will make of thee a great nation. Now, in Hebrew, God said, I will make of thee a great goy. It would have been too utterly silly to translate this, I will make a Gentile of you. So, to make any sense at all, they had to correctly translate it, nation. Again, take Genesis 25, verse 23. Rebekah was then pregnant with the twins, Esau and Jacob. And while they were still in her womb, the unborn children were struggling against each other. So she wondered at this and asked God, what was the meaning of this? And God said to her, in the Hebrew, two goyim are in thy womb. Now certainly God was not telling her, you are an adulteress, pregnant with two Gentile children when your husband is not a Gentile. God said, two nations are in thy womb, two goyim are in thy womb, and that is the way it had to be translated. But it is that same word, goyim, which elsewhere they generally translate as Gentiles. Now let's take some examples from the New Testament. Here, the word mistranslated Gentile is nearly always the Greek word ethnos, which means just exactly nation, the same as the Hebrew word goyim. The seventh chapter of Luke begins with the incident of a Roman centurion who appealed to Jesus Christ to heal his servant, who was sick unto death. The elders of the Jews praised the centurion to Jesus, saying, He loveth our ethnos, and hath built us a synagogue. Now those Jews would certainly never praise anybody for loving Gentiles, and the centurion would not have built a synagogue for Gentiles. So, to avoid complete absurdity, the translators were forced to translate it correctly that ethnos meant nation. Again, take John 11, verse 50. We find that the Jewish high priest, Caiaphas, was plotting with the chief priests and Pharisees to murder Jesus Christ. And Caiaphas told them, it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole ethnos perish not. Now, nothing could have pleased that evil Jewish high priest more than for all the Gentiles to perish, using the word Gentile as we do today. Therefore, the translators had to translate ethnos correctly as nation, that the whole nation perish not. Yet, in many other places, this is the very same word which they mistranslate Gentile. The Greek word ethnos means simply nation, nothing more, nothing less. It has no pagan or non-Israel or even non-Greek connotation. The Greeks distinguished between Greeks and all non-Greek peoples, whom they called barbarians. All educated men of that day knew this, and the Apostle Paul was a very well-educated man who was quite familiar with the Greek language and its idioms. He recognized this distinction in Romans 1, verse 44, where he said, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. Paul never once wrote the word Gentile in any of his epistles. What does this word Gentile mean, and from what is it derived? It is derived from the Latin word Gentilis, which means one who is not a Roman citizen. If you were to use this word correctly, you would have to say that Jesus Christ and his twelve disciples were all Gentiles, because not one of them was a Roman citizen. Only Paul could say that he was not a Gentile, because in the 22nd chapter of Acts, Paul says that he was a Roman citizen by birth. How, then, is it used at present when the speaker means to say that someone is non-Jewish? About the 4th century A.D., its use was loosely extended to cover more than its original meaning. Remember, now, this was 300 years after the last book of the New Testament was written. It was applied especially to those who were heathen, pagans. It became a term for those who were neither Christian nor Jewish, for Christians and Jews were generally called just that, Christian or Jew, as the case might be. But this, remember now, was 300 years after the last book in the New Testament had been written. The word Gentile was never used by the writer of any book of the Old Testament because not one of them had ever heard it, as they had never come in contact with Rome. It was not used by the writer of any book of the New Testament because there is no such word in the Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek languages. They didn't borrow the word from the Latin because if you will look up every place it is used in your King James Version, you will see that it is never used in the correct sense to say that someone is not a Roman citizen. And that is the only meaning it had, the only way that anybody used it in those days. It was put in by the translators 300 years later in an effort to make the Bible say what the translators thought it ought to have said. Therefore, it has no authority at all. In short, whenever you see the word Gentile in the Bible, remember that the correct word is nation, occasionally perhaps broad enough to include race or people. Sometimes it is used when speaking of Israel nations or of the Israelite race as we have seen in the examples I have given you. In other instances, the context will show that it is being used of a nation which is non-Israelite. Only the context in which it is used will show you which meaning to give it. When it is being used of non-Israelite peoples, oh, possibly Gentile is as good a word as any, because we don't seem to have any other in general use. But never be deceived by reading the word Gentile in your Bible because the only correct meaning of it is nation, nothing else, just nation. How can we have been misled into doing the stupid and evil things which our nation has been led to do by our stupid or corrupt leaders? I think we can trace this evil course back to a strange thing, the most curious masquerade in all history. And now I want to talk to you about the great aim The whole Bible is the history of the conflict between our God and the rebel, Satan, carried on between their children also. Didn't you know that they both had children? Yes, I do mean children, not merely followers. If you don't know this, you should read your Bible more carefully. Luke 3, verse 38 tells us that Adam was the son of God. And surely you know that Adam had children and descendants down through our own generation, right on down to ourselves. In many other places, God refers to his own children. For just a few of these, consider first Deuteronomy 32, verse 19. And when the Lord saw it, he abhorred them because of the provoking of his sons and of his daughters. Again, Isaiah 43, verse 6. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. In Isaiah 45, verse 11, we read, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his Maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. In Psalm 82, verse 6, God says, I have said, Ye are God, and all of you are children of the Most High. In the New Testament, we read in John 11, verses 51 and 52, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he should gather together the children of God that were scattered abroad. And Paul in Romans 8, verses 14 and 16 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. As to the children of Satan, this also is affirmed in the Bible from beginning to end. First in Genesis 3 verse 15, where God tells Satan, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. The same Hebrew word for seed or descendants is used in both instances so Satan is to have just as literal seed or children as the woman Eve. Jesus Christ himself affirmed this several times. For example, in Matthew 13, verses 38 and 39, where he said, The field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. Note that. Not that they're just wicked people are followers of the wicked one he says they are the children of the wicked one the enemy that sowed them is the devil in john 6 verses 70 and 71 jesus said to his 12 disciples have not i chosen you twelve and one of you is a devil and he spoke of judas iscariot and judas was the only jew among the disciples again very carefully read the 8th chapter of John, beginning with verse 31, where Jesus said to these Jews, I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye should do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth which I have heard of God. Ye do the deeds of your Father. They tried to masquerade as God's children, but they couldn't deceive him. They said, We have one Father, even God. But Jesus said unto them, If God were your Father, ye would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Ye, now he's speaking to these Jews, ye are of your Father the devil, and the lusts of your Father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. It is my Father that honors me, of whom ye say that he is your God, yet ye have not known him." Now Jesus was not just using vulgarly abusive language to them. He was stating a biological fact with scientific accuracy, just as if he had said to a Chinaman, your ancestors were Mongolians. The Apostle Paul also doesn't hesitate to identify Jews as the children of the devil. Meeting one, in Acts 13, verses 6 to 10, Paul plainly called him, Thou child of the devil. In the thousands of years of this conflict, whenever we've remembered that we are the children of God, and we've remained loyal to him, and remembered that God himself put enmity between his children and Satan's children, then we've had prosperity and high civilization with very little crime and the wars which the wicked started against us ended quickly, with tremendous victories in our favor. Satan's tactics have always been the same down through the ages. First, he tries to crush us by force, as the Bible records many times, and as we saw a few years ago in Japan's treacherous attack upon us. But these attacks from outside always fail when we remember who we are and who they are and act accordingly. Then Satan tries another method. Since God has given us the victory whenever we remember that we are his children and will have nothing to do with the children and the ways of Satan, then Satan realizes the only way to conquer and enslave or destroy us is to make us forget this division between the children of God and the children of Satan and get us all mixed together so that our ways will be corrupted with theirs. Our children will learn their evil because they are integrated with their children. Our government will be controlled by their power, and thereby they will make us enemies of God like themselves. Only when we are in rebellion against God and therefore do not receive his help, only then can Satan and his children hope to destroy us. We were warned of this as of all other dangers. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 2 to 4, we got the first warning. Thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. But we have allowed these Jews to enter our lands in vast numbers. Multitudes of them were admitted illegally under the Roosevelt administration. We've allowed them to take control of our commerce our government, our schools, and now these Jews who hate our God are even laying vile hands on our churches. God warned us not to allow them in the land, saying, For they will turn away thy son from following me. They have done this. Jewish organizations have made such a bitter fight against any mention of the name of Jesus Christ in our schools that many school boards have yielded to their pressure. They've sometimes been able to put some of their own Jewish people into public office for they have ruled officially that we cannot read even one verse from the Bible in our schools, because it offends these enemies of God. Our children are not allowed to hear the name of God in our schools, and now even our churches are being infiltrated and corrupted in the same way, under the guise of interfaith movements. Supposedly Christian ministers have been induced to bring into their pulpits rabbis, whose official doctrine calls our Savior, Jesus Christ, a liar and a fraud. To avoid offending these people, supposedly Christian ministers now carefully avoid preaching anything from the Gospel of John. They practically deny their Savior to please his enemies. So our children, who cannot hear the name of our God in school, often cannot hear it in their churches either. The evil of which God warned us has come upon us. How are Satan's Jewish children able to do this? By a great masquerade, in which they pretended to be God's children and they've corrupted most of our clergymen until they no longer tell us who we are. We received warning of this also if we would only heed it. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 to 15, it says, Such men are sham apostles, dishonest workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, as even Satan himself masquerades as a shining angel. So it is nothing strange if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness, but their doom will fit their actions. So we are told by these corrupted clergymen that these Jews are God's chosen, that they must be helped to invade and steal other people's lands, that our own institutions must be changed so as not to offend them, and that our churches must abandon Jesus Christ because these Jews hate his name, and we must abandon our Savior in order to have fellowship with them. But God warned us not to have fellowship with devils. All masquerades must reach an end, and this one is almost finished. Meantime, it has nearly succeeded in bringing us to destruction. But God will save us because we are his children. Though most of us have forgotten our identity, he has not forgotten. Masks will be removed and our true identity revealed. In Isaiah 51, verses 1 and 2, God has told us, Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord. Look unto the rock from whence ye are Hewn, and to the hole of the pit from whence ye are digged. Look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bore you. That is, look to your ancestry. Recognize that you are Israel, God's children. Stop masquerading as Gentiles, and tear the mask off of Satan's Jewish children, who masquerade as you. And the next thing I want to talk to you about is, binding the strong man. There's nothing out of date about the Bible. Its clear distinctions between good and evil, its rules for human conduct, its laws for the government of the nation are as valid and as vital today as they ever were in the days of the prophets who wrote them. The Bible was written then to be read now. Far more of its prophecies and warnings apply to this present year than were aimed at the times in which they were written. And this is equally true of both Old and New Testament. They are both part of the same book and each confirms the other. We would do well to heed them. When our ancestors founded this nation, they were Christians who recognized the eternal validity of God's laws and were aware that only in obedience to our God could the nation survive. Under the guidance of such men, the few colonies with their small and scattered populations grew to become the mightiest nation the world has seen. All the power of ancient Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, and Rome, the empires who ruled with force and cruelty all the world they knew, was insignificant compared to the majestic might which we enjoyed just 18 years ago. How did it happen that we have now fallen to the point where we pay heavy money tribute to communist Yugoslavia and Poland, that we try with whining pleas and bribes to curry favor with Ghana and Indonesia, with the Congo, with Tunisia and Ethiopia, meanwhile whimpering to anybody who will listen that we just can't survive without the help of these weak and helpless nations. Haven't we even one man in Washington who can understand that unless these nations have the courage and honor to fight for their own freedom even though they stand alone, like heroic little Finland, they certainly won't fight for us just because we pay them bribes. How can we have fallen to the point where we just wince and yelp when Castro kicks us. Only by allowing the anti-Christian Jews to corrupt us, to lead us away from Jesus Christ and the Bible, has this happened. No enemy army crushed our power. No foreign government conquered us. We were betrayed by our own rulers, those whom we had trusted to lead us. What comfort is it that traitors among them are not as numerous as the dukes? The result is the same. And Jesus Christ himself warned us not to let this happen. In Mark 3, verse 27, and in Matthew 12, verse 29, he said, No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man. Then he will spoil his house. Now who will do this treacherous act of binding the strong man? Is it an invader who does this? No, indeed. It is done by the Jews who have infiltrated and corrupted our nation and gained places of power within it. For Jesus Christ also said in Matthew 10, verse 36, A man's foes shall be they of his own household. When we were the strongest nation in the world, able to set all the world free, then we allowed these Jewish infiltrators among us to create that evil monster, the United Nations, and then surrender our strength to it as to a conqueror since then it has done us no good it has only weakened us and begun to destroy even our internal liberties we have been officially told that we have lost the power to decide who may own land in this nation because this is contrary to our united nations treaties and yet our own citizens are still subject to such restrictions in more than two-thirds of the world with deceptive treachery the united nations proposes its so-called human rights covenant and genocide convention each of which if we are so foolish as to adopt it will abolish our constitutional right of jury trial and will make any american citizen including yourself subject to be deported to some foreign nation there to be tried by foreign courts without a jury in proceedings under a foreign law in a language which he doesn't understand thousands of miles away from the people he might need to call as witnesses in his defense and this not because he ever entered such other countries and violated their laws there but for something he has done here in the United States and which is perfectly legal under our own laws do you think that this could never happen wake up false accusations Are the left wing's favorite means of destroying a political opponent do you expect justice from such a court if you are brought before it don't be silly the prophet micah describes the lands where our patriots would be tried on trumped up charges the devout have vanished from the land not one honest soul remains everyone lurks for bloodshed each man preys upon his fellows they have quick fingers for foul play the judge must handle a bribe, the high official acts as he pleases, and between them they baffle justice. The best of them are no better than briars. The straightest are like thorns twisted in the hedge. Do you think that this couldn't happen here? Again, wake up. In three different recent years, here in the United States, so-called military government teams have conducted practice seizures of American cities in which they displaced the civil government, set up concentration camps, issued proclamations threatening to close schools and churches and to suspend the newspapers, and did all of this under the United Nations flag and in the name of the United Nations. Their proclamation stated this, The laws of your country which conflict with our military government policies will be suspended. You will have to function under international law. They listed many new crimes for which American citizens would be punished. Among these, the following. Publishing or circulating or having in possession with intent to publish or circulate any printed or written matter hostile, detrimental, or disrespectful to the military government or to the government of any other of the United Nations. Now remember that Soviet Russia and several of our red satellites are members of the United Nations. As a free American citizen, I shall certainly continue to publish and circulate matter hostile and disrespectful to all communist governments. But if our enthusiastic supporters of the United Nations have their way, I will be placed before a firing squad for daring to tell the truth. So far as these blind worshippers of foreign rule gone in their desire to destroy their own nation, that every true American patriot who wants this country to remain free and independent is smeared as isolationist, reactionary, extreme right-wing, or even fascist. The strong man, our beloved nation, has truly been bound by treacherous members of his own household who would help his enemies to steal his freedom and his wealth. The time still left in which to set him free to defend himself is desperately short. This could never have happened to us if we had obeyed God's laws and heeded his warnings. In Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, he promised us this, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation." but the penalty for setting the demands of admitted minority groups above the laws of God is severe. In Hosea 4, verse 6, we are told, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me. Seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. In his Proverbs, Solomon warned us, For lack of statesmanship, a nation sinks. And the great prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 16, said this, For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and they that are led by them are destroyed. The Bible's message is not to the individual alone. A large part of the Bible is a message to the nation, and which only the nation as such can keep It reports many instances in which disaster came upon all the people the multitude of individuals because they allowed their nation to follow the paths which lead inevitably through corruption into ruin but what the nation as such must do is still the responsibility of each one of us as individuals we must use all our power to direct the nation into the right paths otherwise we as individuals will suffer the disaster which comes upon the nation this is a time for each of us to obey the warning in isaiah 58 verse 1. cry aloud spare not lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgression. if each of you will do your part in this way it is not yet too late and last i want to talk to you about the bible's stern warning to stop helping God's enemies. We who live in this land, which is so blessed with liberty and prosperity, are much too likely to take for granted these conditions. We give no thought to the reasons why they exist. We have inherited them without doing anything on our part to create them or even to preserve them, so we place far too low a value on them. We don't think about how our ancestors won them at the cost of their blood. We have even allowed sinister forces to, to bar out of many of our schools most of the teachings which would tell our children how these things came to be because such teaching would discriminate against the Asiatics and Africans who never had and never wanted such institutions. And it would build up in the children a patriotism which would make it harder to brainwash them into the kind of robots who will make good slaves of a world government. The great ideals upon which our nation was built are no accidents neither are they just the work of men who created them out of nothing they are our heritage from our remote past from ancient ancestors who were taught them by the word of god they are but a part of a far greater plan of racial and national life drawn up for us by our god and set forth in the bible liberty and prosperity are not causes they are results and you cannot long have either one unless you keep the righteousness which is the only cause capable of producing it. Whenever we have forgotten this, we have soon lost our blessings. As both the Bible and the later histories of our race record, we have gone through alternating periods of greatness and decay, of liberty and tyranny, of prosperity and poverty. The greatness came only when we had leaders of uncompromising righteousness and courage, obedient to God in all circumstances, but it was lost when leadership passed into the hands of opportunists and cowards. Greatness was never conferred upon us by other nations, neither could we buy it from them, and never did we grow strong by submerging ourselves in a group of other nations, becoming dependent upon others, and dancing to whatever tune they piped. Only when our leaders feared no one but our God, only when they obeyed him in all things, did we rise to greatness. Men of that stature led us on the paths laid out by God, and we became the mightiest, the freest, the wealthiest nation that world history has ever known. But how have we fallen from that height in the short space of 18 years? We have been led by little men, incapable of the great vision, men without confidence in the God they will not serve. Oh, of course, they're careful to be seen of a Sunday morning in the great Gothic temples of brick and stone, listening to a sermon which never embarrasses them by any mention of neglected duties. But they say their prayers for help to Neru and Tito. They flout the laws of God and yet fear only Khrushchev. Do you wonder that our prestige in the world has been utterly lost in these few years? That a communist dictator can set up an admittedly communist regime just 90 miles off our shores, build bomber airports and rocket bases there, and have Russian troops imported there in growing numbers, while we, we just cringe and whimper for Bolivia and Ecuador and Nicaragua to do what we dare not do, to remove this menace while yet there may be time. We have sunk to this despicable level because it is the level of our leadership, Their highest ideal is to help the wicked in order to curry favor with them in the hope that the wicked may then allow us to peacefully coexist with them. In this spirit, we have given Russia several billion dollars worth of aid. We have given Tito over two billion dollars worth, although Tito has openly and repeatedly declared that when war comes, he will fight on Russia's side. And we have given communist Poland over half a billion dollars in aid. That is, we have knowingly and deliberately strengthened our enemies who have openly proclaimed their intention to conquer and enslave us. But what is worse, these nations are not merely our enemies, they are God's enemies. No nation can align itself with God's enemies without becoming one of them. This warning is not new. Over 28 centuries ago, an ancient king of our people was rebuked for this same misconduct and told, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? For this reason, wrath has come upon you from before the Lord. That's Second Chronicles 19, verse 2. It's been in the Bible ever since, as a warning to us. The proper standard is clearly stated in Psalm 26, verse 5. I have hated the congregation of evildoers, and will not sit with the wicked. And again, Psalm 139, verses 21 and 22. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am not I grieved with them that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Of course, if you follow God's rules, you will lose the votes of the commie-crat liberals. And of course, we couldn't risk that just to be loyal to God. So we support our leaders when they justify giving aid to Tito, who's this bloody, as a Stalin, in order to gain the political support of liberal minorities. Do you know what God said about that? Isaiah 5, verses 22 and 23 tells us, Woe unto them which justify the wicked for reward, and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. Proverbs 17, verse 15 also, He that justifieth the wicked and he that condemneth the just even they both are abomination to the lord and proverbs 24 verse 24 he that saith unto the wicked thou art righteous him shall the people curse nations shall abhor him yet this is what our leaders have been doing we prodigally pour billions of dollars into the lap of our openly acknowledged enemy tito but the heroic little finland what do we give not even our sympathy. When any nation is staunchly anti-communist like Spain, we intrigue behind the scenes with the red revolutionaries who want to overthrow their government. We mutter darkly about the evil of fascist dictatorships, although Franco of Spain has done nothing more than to suppress communist revolution. But our government has not spoken one word of criticism of the unspeakably bloody tyranny of Tito or of the red dictatorship in Poland. For the reward of the support of liberal minorities, our leaders praise Tito and Gomulka, but they condemn General MacArthur and General Walker for being loyal to their own country and opposed to communism. Isn't this exactly what the Bible warned against? He that justifieth the wicked, and he that condemneth the just, even they both are abomination to the Lord. Woe unto them! which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. Nationally, we have adopted a policy of helping communism to stay in power. To our eternal shame, never once have we asked Russia to negotiate for the withdrawal of Russian armies from Europe and setting the oppressed people free. But our government almost pled with Khrushchev to negotiate how far Russia's new demands on East Berlin might be granted. God always condemns such a policy. Our duty is not to retreat while we smooth the path for further advances of the armies of wickedness. Our duty is to boldly smash the forces of evil. God told us in Isaiah 58, verse 6, Is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that ye break every yoke. Make no mistake about this. God rules this world in spite of the corrupt politicians. There is no path to peace, to prosperity, in the great future we all hope for, except that path marked out by God. All others eventually reach one end. Proverbs 14, verse 12 tells it. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. We have followed the ways of death in vain, the dangers that beset us now are greater than when we started on this course. Again, the Bible tells it. Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear comes as desolation and your destruction comes as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me, for they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. By pandering to the sinister influence of minority groups, we ourselves have created the strength that communism now wields against us. As Hosea 10, verse 13 says, Ye have plowed wickedness, ye have reaped iniquity, ye have eaten the fruit of lies. There's only one way out. Turn back to God. Not by hypocritical prayers in the churches, which we mock in our actual conduct, but by stopping all help to God's enemies, by using our God-given power only on his side, by returning to God in all our ways. That alone can bring
0: light As you might have heard, it was a very, very interesting uh, little discussion and this gentleman really went into some very deep detail about who the Jews were, what they did, how they did it. And so it's great to have some moral support. I feel like I'm really pounding things down. I've searched high and low for so much information to bring to you and whenever I come across something, I feel it's important to share it because the truth will set you free. And this is what Jesus told us. So we must believe him. And I believe it is. It's a search for the truth of his story. As in Jesus Christ, who came here and died on the cross to set us free from these wicked, evil entities that have taken over. And they are running this world. And they really are very wicked indeed. It's very frustrating. It's not easy at all. But what we have to remember is that we are all unified in the body of Christ, one head which is Jesus Christ, and we are the body in the spirit, we are all joined together. And so, if you see anything that you want to share, please do, you know, get in touch with me, share it with me, and then we can put it out to the world. Because I think it's important that we all get this information as much as possible, because Like I say, the truth will set us free. (laughs) So with that, I will end this and I hope you all have an amazing day. God bless you all. It's Ayesha from God FM. Take care.